Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's true that a lot of actors are apprehensive about coming forward because they're nervous about not being hired as often if they are ruffling feathers. So I actually took it upon myself to teach myself production and content creation. And I started building out different workshops and revenue streams Mm. in my personal life so that I've had a little bit more confidence coming forward, knowing, okay, if I get fired or released for, you know, raising some flags, then I will be okay. Welcome back to Redefine You, a conversation for well-being. I'm your host, Haley Hasselhoff. Redefine You is meant to inspire you to look within and guide you to lead a life being grounded in you. At six years old, Allison Stoner was and is a triple threat, starring in films and television like Cheap Brother Dozen, Step Up, as well as Disney Channel's The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and Camp Rock. She showcased her moves in music videos with Missy Elliott, Will Smith, and Eminem. But now, today, she is the author of Mind Body Pride, a seven-step guide for deeper inner connection. She's also the founder of Movement Genius. And with October 10th approaching, every year it is World Mental Health Day, which actually started in 1994. Now, the aim of World Mental Health Day is to raise awareness on mental health issues around the world and to share stories in support of normalizing mental health conversations, which is why Allison is the perfect person to guide us into this day by sharing her experience and the way she is helping people heal and empower themselves. Now, she experienced and accumulated a variety of health conditions that affected her everyday life behind the scenes, and I can't wait to speak with her here today. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for that lovely intro. I love hearing how people piece together the different elements of others' lives. And, you know, what's valuable for this conversation is something that is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm really looking forward. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. You know, as we start every episode on the pod, I like to ask my guests, if you were to check in with yourself emotionally right here, right now, what would Allison find? I love that question because I typically ask people, if your mood were a color, what color are you Mm. feeling? And if your thoughts were moving zero to 100, what speed are they moving? So thank you that I get to be on the receiving end. Um, and you know, I, I actually feel very peaceful and at ease and thankful that the topics we'll be discussing are very important and like a second skin for me at this point. Sometimes before interviews, I feel anxious. You know, I'm apprehensive about what will be asked and how I'll respond, but I feel really, really comfortable in who I am showing up today. And that feels Mm. like a a big gift. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to ask you, what mood, what color are you feeling? What color am I feeling? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, yellow is the first one that sort of comes to my mind. But then there's red right behind it. So what does that tell you about me? Okay. A little sunshine, a little spice. Okay. I'm ready for that. A little bit of sugar and a little bit of spice. You know, one of the things that you obviously said resonated with me because the whole purpose of the podcast would start out as an live series. And when it started, it was really just about talking to my friends in the industry around their ownership, their mental well-being journey. Because ever so often in our careers, we were always told to shy away from speaking about just that. What were our personal achievements, not our professional achievements? And that's why I'm so excited to have you on because now you are fearlessly speaking about your personal achievements. And maybe you had challenges and struggles along the way, like we all do, but being able to normalize that we all go through it showcases that you can struggle and still succeed in the industry or outside the industry, just living your day-to-day life. You know, as we discussed in the beginning, Today or this week is World Mental Health Day. It always happens in October. But I think over the past two years, we've actually amplified it into a way of understanding or being able to sign of go, okay, what's World Mental Health Day mean to me? The theme this year is mental health is an unequal world. So what does that mean to you necessarily? Well, of course, um, first of all, I just am feeling so geeky because I love the fact that when we talk about mental health, we are each using our minds that will perceive and receive information very differently from Mm. one another. Mm. So already in your question, you're acknowledging that mental health is not the exact same identical experience. And if it's unequal, that reminds me of the kind of baseline inequities we see systemically, institutionally, who has access to mental health care and resources. Also just the standards by which we measure mental health tend to favor and cater to a very narrow set of people, identities, bodies, um, medical needs. Namely, I actually, you know, in many ways, check the boxes. It's a lot of times white people, a lot of times, um, you know, straight folks, non-disabled bodies. And so when I think about making mental health more accessible, more affordable, and more multiculturally competent, it inspires the possibility to change that um, phrase and say mental health is actually um, equally available and possible. Mm-hmm. And because, of course, everyone is is equally deserving. Um, to experience a, a state of mental wellness and to know how to feel safe and comfortable and confident in their mind and body instead of feeling like they're at odds with themselves. We already have plenty of challenges externally. So a huge passion of mine is how can we become allies to ourselves in our own transformation so we really build up that resilience and feel like we can manage whatever the day brings, light, dark, everything in between. Of course. And I think what they mean by unequal is the lack of information or services we have to service ourselves in the mental health community. If you are looking for therapy, if you are looking for treatment, if you are looking for that community. And so it's about being able to bring us all together, like you said, to know that mental health is actually an equal divider between us all that we all experience on all different levels, but we all experience mental health. And so how can we bring this conversation to light to have people understand their needs to be more 
conversations. There needs to be more services and there needs to be more movement forward to allow people to come forth and feel the strength behind the vulnerability and speaking up and speaking out between their struggles. And people like you are paving that way. You know, when you have somebody like yourself in the public eye speaking up about their mental health struggles, it allows somebody else to feel free to take validation in theirs. And that's really all it is. You want to take validation within your mental health journey so that you don't feel fearful about what's going on and not feeling like the loneliness that you experience because nobody else is speaking up about it overpowers the ride to continue and to continue going on. Yeah. I, man, I, I will say quickly to that point, I do feel it's important if we're going to offer our own individual stories, we also have to elevate the overall public education and, and consciousness about mental health simultaneously. Because mm -hmm. if we simply share our stories, but we don't build an understanding of what's happening cognitively, what's happening medically, what's happening uh, in your embodiment, um, then we might just get so attached to our stories that we end up kind of caving in and feeling stuck in them as opposed to freed to understand ourselves in new ways, you know? So I, I, I just want to make sure as we start chatting about what we experience every day, that we couple it with the research, with science, with art, with therapeutic techniques that truly allow for real transformation and not just, you know, internalizing this sense of kind of doom and gloom that I might be stuck here forever. And this is who I am. And I can't be anything else besides this. Right. So it's the daily practice. It's finding your toolbox, right? It's finding things outside yourself to understand why you're feeling the feels and how you can process them to better walk alongside them the next time you have a flare up, the next time you have a challenging moment, just to being able to kind of capitalize on what you just beautifully said. You know, I think that's what the importance is of this podcast is also having people hear your stories of, of your struggles, but then the triumph that came through that because you found ways to move forward and lessons along the way with those. But let's let's kind of start from how you got to be so eloquently speaking about such a topic that means so much not only to myself but I believe to the audience that's listening today. You know, you started to express yourself through acting, singing and dancing at a very very young age. And I want to know because like myself, I started to express myself as an actor at the age of 6. So I want to know from you, you know, where was this encouraged within your lifestyle or within your family and your upbringing? None of us were involved in entertainment, and I don't think any of us were seeking to be a part of the industry per se. I happened to attend a convention where we did these, you know, mock auditions, mm -hmm. but it had real consequence because agents and managers were there observing and, yep. you know, giving out callbacks and recommending certain young kids try out. Los Angeles or New York City. And, you know, I'm from a small town in Ohio <laughs> and we had no context. And actually, I think that's part of the reason so many young people end up struggling, uh, whether that's psychologically or financially or relationally, socially, all of the different ways, because there's really a lack of preparation tools, uh, resources that let you know what you're getting into the lifestyle of constant auditions 
And some of that's just logistically chaotic. It's just a lot to keep up with, but it's also psychologically chaotic when you're switching from one character to the next four times a day and kind of forgetting which one, which parts of yourself are your authentic identity and which parts you ended up gathering from a previous character. Um, so I, I wasn't necessarily encouraged or, you know, forced to stay in it, but I experienced a very fortunate response right away and started working and then kind of never stopped. Yeah. And again, to most people who are aspiring to break into the industry, that is an ideal situation to have uh, an early break and then to keep riding and building that momentum. However, it really took a toll on my body because I had no concept of self-regulation and, you know, just being subjected to a lot of different intense situations and environments. Mm. My body responded with shutting down. Mm. So I had this paradox of looking like I was expressing myself, but I actually felt very muted and numb most of the time. I didn't have words for it then, but I know now because I'm actually in my body and I feel awake and alive and I can experience joy and pleasure that I really spent most of my early life very disconnected um, and pretty much in a, in a state of dissociation. Mm-hmm. I know now that was a, a, my body's best tool to survive. And we did everything we could to manage the stress levels. Um, but my greatest journey has been um, really sinking into my skin so that when I do perform now, it is an expression inside out. And it's not just a mechanical um, performance from the outside in. You know, as a dancer, it's one thing to be able to say, yes, I can create this shape and form. And to you, it may look like I'm hitting the beat. But if I can't feel anything that it loses the the human essence in it. So now in many ways, you know, the arc of my journey so far has been to really bring forward that that essence, uh, that quality of being, not just quality of doing. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So one of the things that you talk about often now is having sort of a harrowing experience as a child actor. And the reason I want to go back to this statement is I think it's really important for child actors who are getting into the industry to understand what they're putting themselves into and also potentially the family members or the team members that are putting them into that. I was born into the industry. So I had that protection already from a figure that knew sort of what you were putting yourself into and when to pull me out when it got too much. And so from you, this word harrowing, 
which I don't think many child actors come out to talk about because they also are concerned about how it may inflict on their current careers. Um, you know, what did that mean to you back then? Because then it leads me into this wonderful work that you're doing now to try and protect child actors. Mm -hmm. Yes. To your point, it's true that a lot of actors are apprehensive about coming forward because they're nervous about not being hired as often if they are ruffling feathers. Um, So I actually took it upon myself to teach myself production and content creation. And I started building out different workshops and revenue streams Mm. uh, in my personal life so that I've had a little bit more confidence coming forward, knowing, okay, if I get fired or released for, you know, raising some flags, then I will be okay. I am, you know, far more self-sustained now than I was five, 10 years ago when I was hyper-dependent on whether or not I booked the next gig. So I think, you know, speaking to the, the psychological impact on a child, it is very complicated for someone to understand who is not in this unique, very strange situation. But for all of us, we have to acknowledge that in those formative years, you are getting your first example, not second or third, but your first example of what reality even is. So if I, as a child, am going into a room and I'm living out a variety of scenes, some joyful, some traumatic, um, some full of grief, and I am learning that my day-to-day experience is to embody really heavy or extreme scenarios and do it in front of strangers in a sterile room and wait for them to either approve of me or reject me, I'm learning a lot of subtle lessons about interacting with people, about um you know, what it, how that's tied to my own survival, because if I get the job, then I have money to pay for food. If I don't get the job, then I got to find out other ways of, of getting my basic needs met. And so that's me at seven years old, thinking about things that maybe a typical seven-year-old is not. And on top of that, if you experience a certain kind of fame or notoriety you've got this added awareness of your own sense of physical safety because you are constantly aware of being followed, being stared at. And some of that can be harmless, you know, a a fan or of your work. Some of it can be full-blown stalker profiles and people maybe trying to injure you. Um, So, you know, or folks who believe that they're in a, an intimate relationship with you because you've been in their household on their flat screen um, every day, at, even though you haven't met them ever. So it's a lot of layers that are far more complex than just, um, oh, it was sad that I had to cry on cue. And it's hard for people to unpack that. But I think what's important is I'm not coming forward just because I want people to care about my story. This is actually, it's a group cause here. This is a societal issue of how we utilize media in our day-to-day lives, how it influences 
what your children think when they're growing up about themselves, um, what we think about concepts like love or justice. Um, there are so many ways that all of our lives are are inextricably connected through media and by us finding wiser ways to, you know, protect the well-being of artists as well as be maybe mindful and more ethical about how we film and what we film, we're actually making space for healthier societies <laughs> um, overall. In your own experience, though, for somebody who is listening, you know, what did you go through? Did you, were you doing school on set? Was it kind of that normal, what people think of when you are a child? I mean, I know that you're talking about obviously the outside effects of being somebody that is known at such a young age and what can be inflicted with it, right? The fans, the stalkers, so forth and so forth. And those are things that you don't really choose. Those are things that just fall into your lap. And then you have to understand that that's a part of you being able to follow your passion and your career. And your dreams. But I guess, right. uh, uh, you know, two, two part question here is the first one is, you know, what was your experience when it comes to schooling and such? And then how also did you sort of identify with when the passion started and the fear, the fear began, right? So when the passion was still there, but the fear started to begin as well with all the added outside things that you weren't necessarily prepared for, nor did anybody around you protect you or teach you enough about it when you were growing into your own self as just a, a young, young lady? Yes. Well, school-wise, I attended eight schools before eighth grade, and I've tried everything. Um, most schools were not versed in how to, you know, coordinate a curriculum for a, a child who's only going to be in the classroom one day out of the year. Mm. It's otherwise on a set. Um, set set educators, while they definitely have to go through and get their credentials, many times are still placating to the pace of the production. And children don't receive schooling the way they ought to. Um, and even so, you're going back and forth in and out of a classroom. And it's 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 not a conducive environment for legitimate learning. And it's really, it's really sad to see the gaps in my education, um, classes that I never took, basic, basic core classes that I've never taken, um, but still somehow graduated because exceptions were made because of my position in the industry. And I, I don't like that at all. Mm. Um, but on, on top of that, you know, some, some other factors that started occurring that maybe people don't really think about. Um, young artists are, are subjected to a very unique set of pressures and risks and experiences um, that could include forced or free labor. It could include sexual, physical, or um, psychological abuse and violence from uh, teams, um, also actually from the public. Um, there's exploitation and extortion. You know, I experienced people double dipping, triple dipping into money that I made, money that I will now never see, money I didn't even know I had. Um, there's a lot of coercion into using illegal substances and maybe performing degrading acts. I I'm, I'm much better at having a conversation with 
12 guys in suits than mm. I am with a peer on a playground. I mean, talk about like severe social anxiety around kids my own age, um, but total comfort the older the human is. I think to that point that you just talked about, social anxiety is something that as we are are older, we don't understand that we are going through that as children, right? So for you to go back and to say to yourself, you know, back then, actually, when I was uncomfortable around being around peers that were of my age, but comfortable around being an adult because of my profession, how Mm -hmm. is that when you reflect on that social anxiety when you were a kid? And is that still with you somewhat today? Uh, You know, I, I feel sadness. I feel really kind of a solemn melancholy about different parts of my childhood. Um, And in many ways, I actually feel that as I get older, I'm really getting younger. I'm reclaiming Mm. that youthful wonder for the world. I'm getting to dream. Um, Dreaming about a future was never something I did. And I could have maybe, but that just wasn't my response to what was happening. Right. Um, So you know, through all of this, I'm I'm not claiming that everyone has my experience. I'm sure there are kids whose families maybe felt more equipped, and and the kids were maybe just more resilient than yeah. I am. Um, but I I kind of had to learn from scratch, and it was quite messy and 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 sad. So the social anxiety component, you know, that wasn't just building friendships. That was also dating, and not at all knowing what it meant to build trust with someone, to be intimate emotionally, physically, um, because I I was so guarded, right? I had to protect Mm -hmm. my reputation above all else. So it prevented me from being authentic. And and, and when you do that with other people, it's interesting, you kind of also do it with yourself. So I might have spent a lot of time, you know, metaphorically looking in the mirror and thinking that I was looking within, but I still had to keep that mask on while I was doing it. So, you know, as I've gotten older, yes, I kind of said, Hey, I really need to just, I need to be honest with what's Mm -hmm. here. And it's going to get probably pretty ugly for a moment because you've only been looking at the curated polished pieces of who you are and making them, you know, exaggerating them. Um, So, so, yeah, I mean, it was tough to look within and see see the the weak, the vulnerable, the damaged, the broken, the angry, the depressed pieces, because um, I had so much judgment and contempt for being imperfect. You know, my whole life was like, no, you've got to keep it together. What are yeah. you going to do with these pieces? Anxiety, you know, with with connecting with people is still to this day a process for me. And I really have to make conscious decisions to to say it's okay for me to let this person in. It's okay for me to be here right now and not have to entertain them. I'm enough if I'm just where I am in this moment. Um, Mm. But, you know, big, big learning curves, totally. (laughs) 
Of course. And I think that that's why we're here today, right? It's this wonderful journey of exploration of yourself and now being able to, without judgment and with self-assurance, be able to tell the truth of your story that's brought you to where you are. A lot on this podcast, we talk about triggers, how they live in our body, how that's inflicted within our inner you know, child work for you as somebody who was developing. And what I mean by developing is our body develops as we grow into it being a teenager. We don't know why we develop, like we don't understand why we don't develop like person next to us or that we do develop with the person next to us. And I can only imagine what your experience must have been like having to go from project to project while you were growing up, while you were developing and how that might have inflicted on your relationship with your body. So what was that like for you with your relationship with your body at such a time where you were just naturally growing up? It looked like a severe eating disorder that required four months of rehab. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to be the best, you know, model for young people and the healthiest, you know, example. And yet I myself was putting myself under immense pressures and very unhealthy, um, protocols. So, you know, I was working out like 10 to 12 hours a day between dance mm -hmm. rehearsal and, and, my own personal training. Um, and it stunted my development. My body started shutting down my, you know, I experienced hair loss. I, my skin was sallow and, um, and I was completely disconnected. And of course, a lot of anxiety. Um, but then even as I came out of my eating disorder and was, you know, experiencing recovery, then a whole new host of sort of uh, symptoms were able to come forward. Cause it was like, Hey, this stuff's been actually underneath. <laughs> you yeah. haven't even been feeling this going on. Now you can feel it. And I, I had stress induced seizures, um, that were so confusing because out of nowhere, you know, I would kind of hit a moment of overwhelm and then my body would start reacting and, and shaking and then almost kind of go limp in a way and had to go to the hospital a few times. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's affected every area of my body and being every system, my mind, my, my lungs are affected. Everything is affected mm -hmm. and the kind of emotional triggers, I would say something that was difficult. It's like, Oh, you are the girl who does A, B, and C and nothing else. And here I was going, I actually have tons of other interests and qualities, but I'm reduced to this single role forevermore, literally for, for my industry. And it's something I try to offer other people now is space and grace to be more than I know you to be. And to really say, I know you have more layers than what I can currently see right now. And how can I support your fullest expression? Because that wasn't really offered to me. If anything, if I followed the media and what they wanted from me, I would still only be talking about my past to this day. And, and I was like, no, I'm so much more than that. So, you know, hard cut to the present. I'm a founder and I have certifications in the mind and body and psychological first aid space. 
and I live outside of LA finally. <laughs> and I'm in completely different communities, you know, related to social impact and advocacy. And like that is far more authentic than just saying I'm a dancer and a dancer only. I think that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Is that the media has a perception of who you are. And sometimes when somebody meets you, that perception then goes on forward and then you get stuck there. I mean, even you know, for myself, there was things that was written about our family growing up where we would sit into this bubble of like, I'm not going to go back to school and hold an assembly to tell them the truth. <laughs> like I know as long as my team, my family and my loved ones know the truth and I'm okay, I can live a fulfilled life, right? That's just a side entity. But sometimes you can start to feel like if somebody writes something about yourself, it becomes a labeled perception. And then how do you break through to that? Or why does that become the number one goal? The goal is to break people's perception rather than just living your authentic truth and being okay if that receives to them or not. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, family life because you, you grew up in, in a family that wasn't in the industry yet. You were the one that kind of blossomed into it and had, troubles along the way, you know, are you still close with your family during that period of time? Did you feel support from your family going through this at such a young age? I think we were all trying to do our best and just keep up with the rapid changes. I feel at the core, there is definitely love and support. Um, my mother sacrificed so, so much to make it possible to be with me on set and we have, you know, three girls in the family. So I'm sure my sisters had their own response to the youngest taking up more energy and time in the family dynamic. And I would say we all started kind of as our own islands. And as we've gotten older, our lives are beginning to intersect um, a little bit more. So it's it's beautiful. It's coming around in, in a lovely way. But the industry has a, a way of really just kind of isolating people um because mm. it's just so all-consuming and it it really has such a severe impact on everyone um so yeah hopefully we'll continue getting closer so what are the things that you talk about that you were diagnosed with alexithymia am i saying it correctly alexithymia Alexithymia, the inability to identify emotions and sensations. Can you speak to us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes. So for example, if I were having a really heated discussion with someone mm -hmm. and, and you asked, what are you feeling in your body? Someone might say, well, I can feel maybe there's tightness in my chest or that mm -hmm. my hands feel mobilized, either, you know, kind of fight and defend myself or there's like a sense of aggression. They could name the sensations, even if it was, it doesn't feel good. And right. I actually could not sense the things happening in my body. I spent years with a therapist just learning vocabulary and then trying one moment at a time to, to feel safe enough for my body to say, okay, you can deal with a little bit of this sensation. And when you're alexithymic, if you were to turn everything on like a switch, that would just overwhelm and shut you down again. So mm. you have to do this gradual process of building stamina for dealing with sensation. And unfortunately for many years, it was very difficult for me to 
experience happiness without having a fear that's that a threat was looming. So mm-hmm. I would kind of undercut my joy and happiness um, just to just to kind of preserve my sense of stability. Slowly over time, um, I've learned how to actually experience joy, like I said, pleasure, delight. Um, and it's breathtaking now, yeah. but, um, it can be a lot to be in your own skin. It's, it's a lot for all of us. Um, but it's almost just like a heightened sensitivity. Once things come back online, you know, it's, it's walk, it's being in a dark cave and then walking out into a bright sun. And for someone else, they're like, ah, another beautiful day outdoors. And you're like, Mm. this is blinding and I need some time to adjust. Do you still deal with the trauma that you've experienced today? Do you feel like triggers come up and you're really good at identifying them? Oh, I mean, for better and worse, so much of who I am is shaped by traumatizing events as well mm-hmm. as um, the traumatization, which to, to separate those everyone responds to events differently. Some people do experience traumatization. Others don't, you know, and, and, and trauma is not just the big singular accident or incident. It can be anything that is too much, too soon, too late, as um, I believe Resma Menachem puts it. Um, And anything that's too overwhelming and you feel like you don't have the resources to properly care for yourself, respond to that threat, and then complete the cycle. That's Mm -hmm. actually the biggest thing that's, that's still a lesson for me right now is I've processed things, but a part of completing the process is then discharging that energy that the, the, you know, stress chemical cocktail coursing through your veins. And it's very common actually for humans to get stuck before completing the cycle. We stay Mm -hmm. in that freeze mode as opposed to, as Peter Levine would put it, allowing yourself to thaw out and the way an animal might literally kind of shake to release the stress and then move on with their day. We don't ever complete the cycle. That's why my company movement genius focuses specifically on the body. It's Mm -hmm. not just like body in terms of exercise and movement, giving you a feel good, you know, endorphin rush. It's, Hey, we've been storing this in different areas. We're we're storing our memories, our experiences. And now let's find ways to really allow ourselves to move through that and feel freer, lighter, and also stronger to handle whatever your day brings. It's shifting the energy, right? So it's shifting the energy and, and the blood circulation flow on a daily basis and understanding the power in which our feelings and our emotions can be stored within our bodies. And what's beautiful about obviously Movement Genius, which you talk so eloquently about, is this wonderful thing that you're not telling people as yourself as an athlete, you're not telling them to wake up every morning and to put movement into your body to make it something in which is going to alter your physical appearance, but it's more so about just being able to move 
move and circulate your blood flow to have people understand that that really does play into this whole idea of mind, body, and soul. They have a connectivity to each other that's bigger than all of us. There's vibrations outside of us that are vibrating inside us as well. So it's a wonderful, wonderful tool. And it brings me obviously to all this amazing work that you're doing in the mental health community today. One of the things I want to placate on, and I really want to talk about with this, you know, being World Mental Health Month and such, is this idea about having a mental health professional on set. So whatever you had endured in the past, you're being able to put the, your pain to purpose. And that's what you should be applauding yourself for. It's not about erasing your past, because like you said, it makes you who you are, it makes you the strong, empowered woman that you are. Same goes with me. My past, I would never want to erase it. It's made me grounded in the knowledge that I have towards the feelings and the power that they have behind them. But what is the cause and the, and the way for us to move forward and help another person through it? It's being able to find the gap in the market and how or what I needed when I was younger. So can you talk to us a little bit more about sort of making it a mandatory immediate literacy course for guardians and mental health professionals to be on set? Yes, I can. <laughs> I'm currently putting together mental health toolkits with a couple of professors and experts in the field um, who also understand entertainment and, and artistry, which is very important. Um, and there are a couple layers here. First, having a mental health practitioner on a set will help a young person or a person of any age mm. ent enter the character, but also de-roll after yeah. and bring their body to a state of equilibrium. So they're not carrying the stress um, in their bodies and then going home with it. And of course that will end up affecting the family relationships, school productivity, performance, all of it anyway. Um, there's also a need to have child labor laws in all 50 states. We don't even have basic protections for hours that kids can work, um, for things that they're subjected to. Like we, we need to be far more cognizant of where we're placing young people and just this goes for the crew as well. All human beings on a set, like it's a mm -hmm. bizarre it's an alternate dimension. <laughs> Sets are a different universe um, and they are not necessarily designed with human well-being in mind. Um, so doing a combination of, um, you know, resources for families to feel like they're prepared with an understanding of what's going on psychologically for their child, as well as the set dynamics of how to, uh, you know, raise your voice if you feel that something's actually inappropriate or, um, you know, crosses a boundary that you're, it's just non-negotiable for you. Um, mm -hmm. But pre prepping people to be able to make better decisions before, during, and after um, to support themselves. And to put that into a real life example, I had a, a mom reach out the other day. Her four-year-old was on her first film set. And unfortunately, even though they knew in the script that there was violence, they were told mm. the four-year-old wouldn't be in the same room when things were happening. And sure enough, the actor who's a method actor, so never broke character, stayed in his violent rage. And they put the four-year-old in the room and the man, you know, I can't disclose too much, but did things that led the four-year-old to be in a state of panic for days after. The four-year-old was legitimately traumatized from that scenario and the mother was helpless. 
Like, you know, she can't come up against the production company and say, hey, I demand you shoot this scene without my daughter. Mm. I mean, she could, but they would probably just say no way. So it's it's learning to look at all of the elements here and say, okay, families, how what can you establish with your 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 child when you go on set so that they can create a sense of safety and they can return to that safety if needed. Um, And then also actually shifting how we film things. Does the kid need to be on camera when that's happening or could you film it? So it looks like it's from their point of view, witnessing it. And then when you cut back to them, they can be, you know, alone in a corner and you don't actually have to place them in the room when other stuff's going on. You can tell them it's a totally different set of circumstances and still get maybe a little bit of that emotional performance, but nothing that's going to be as intense and, you know, harmful ultimately. So yeah, whether it's a, you know, a mental health practitioner in the form of an occupational therapist or, you know, a child life specialist, we just, we have to take better care. And to, to some of your earlier points, mental health is not just the mind. The mind is housed in your body and the body is living within the environment. Mm -hmm. If we try to solve mental health issues only from the neck up, we're not actually treating the whole self and the healing will only go so far. I could change my thought life. I could correct or improve negative beliefs. But if my nervous system is still going to be activated anytime I go somewhere um, because of all the different triggers, that's no way to live. So I have to invite the body into healing and I have to be aware of how the environment is affecting me. You have to treat yourself in context. And that's, you know, the core of movement genius. It's mind, body, and the space around you. And like you said, it is definitely not a, you know, the philosophy is not a diet and fitness culture. It's come as you are and learn how to, how to understand that you're telling a story every day in your thoughts and in your body. And some of them you're conscious of, some of them you're not consciously aware of. How can we help ourselves understand who we are and feel so comfortable in our skin and be able to to really find an authentic version of well-being specific to your needs, your daily schedule, not just this blanket kind of diet fitness standard. And that doesn't work for for anyone. It doesn't work for anyone. No, and you'll hear a bit later, obviously, that I always say that you should always focus on the three M's. That's mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement on your day-to-day practice. It's about being able to tap into who you are in that present moment in time. And that can always be redefined. That can always change. That can always develop because we are evolving beings. But when you start to have that understanding that I'm going to evolve with myself and where I want to take myself to go, it kicks off the pressure of having the answer all 
always. When you need to have the answer and you need to be that perfect person, that's when you start to feel fearful to actually reflect within and to look that sometimes these things can change. And over time, I can find power for different periods of my life that I may have not had power for before once in my life, right? Right, right. So I know that for you, I want to tap into this because I think that it was very brave of you and very beautiful of you that in 2018, you came out as pansexual in an open letter, obviously to Teen Vogue, which is 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 a bold statement to be because you're not only just doing it for your own self-growth, but you're also putting it out there for the public to receive as well. You did you talk a little bit about how you had to check in yourself in an outpatient program. Can you speak to us a little bit more about that and how that sort of helped you within finding that groundedness and that power? Yes. So I'll, I'll actually um I'll speak to the conversion therapy. So conversion therapy is very different than conversation or like cognitive behavioral therapy. Conversion therapy is is actually a set of practices where a professional tries to quote unquote help um, a young Mm. queer person uh, reverse or eliminate the same sex or queer attraction um, and sexual orientation. It's sometimes, oftentimes in tandem with a certain kind of religious ideology. Um, And it can be as simple as um, people wanting to kind of pray the gay away, uh, which is actually not that simple. I had people trying to get a demon of homosexuality out of my body at some point. Yeah. And then uh, also uh, it can be a whole inpatient program where, you know, I've seen young people being forced to endure a lot of physical abuse as well as like ridiculous tasks that break down their spirit, their psyche until they comply and say, okay, I won't do this anymore. Um, and it can be, it can actually be torturous. So it's, and it's not yet illegal everywhere. So this is still currently happening um, as a practice. And I did have my own version of that, um, far less intense. I mean, sorry, physically intense, emotionally Mm -hmm. and psychologically. Yes. Absolutely horrible. Everybody Um, has their own experience with it. And any experience with that is going to be hard and traumatizing. So, um, going into that, I mean, how old were you when you, you were put into that sort of environment? Well, ironically, I chose it because I, I, at the time, my particular understanding of faith and, mm. and the world um, led me to want to do whatever it took to be, uh, to be obedient, to be upright morally, to be, you know, spiritually um, pure. And this was there was no place for this kind of behavior or attraction. So I, I sought out options to handle it. You know, that's the, that's the language that I used at that time before I really started deep diving and kind of deconstructing, unlearning, opening my heart, my mind. Um, And, you know, I say that falling in love with a woman is actually one of the best things that happened to me because it forced me to not forced. It invited me to truly unravel 
the story that had been driving me. And if I didn't do that work, I would not have been exposed to so many incredible humans, ideas, um, tools, and spaces that mm-hmm. are so life-giving and such a such a a more um, compassionate uh, expression of of love and uh, hope and possibility for for humans. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean it. I came out publicly and though I was afraid of the consequences professionally, for example, I was released from a show because people no longer thought I was safe to be around children um, because I was pansexual. Yes. How is that even a thing? (laughs) Listen, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not into, (laughs) but, but I understand that from people's perspectives, no, like don't those say things. you understand that there's no understanding to that. It, oh, I no you have to understand it's I'm not, I'm not agreeing with it, but it's the education beyond you coming out as pansexual. It's the education of them understanding that it's just you living in your authentic truth and you coming onto a set to play another character isn't going to inflict on what you're there to do as a professional job. And it's not, it's, you know, people thinking it's contagious. So they no longer wanted, wanted me to hang out in certain circles. And I'm like, listen, respectfully, I wasn't attracted to you before this. And I'm not <laughs> attracted to you now. Like I'm a highly well, selective. Well, sure. Yeah. Like very selective in that regard. Um, but yeah, you know, I, a part of the reason I did end up writing the letter was because I didn't want to just do an interview and then have a journalist maybe switch my words. But also my girlfriend at the time was like, Hey, are we going to live in secret forever? And I wanted to be able to say, no, you are worth coming forward. Even if that involves some sacrifice on my part. And, um, and it was rocky. Um, it was difficult. You know, we are definitely not together anymore, but, but it was a huge learning curve that ultimately through the mess, through the hardship, um, turned into, uh, you know, a whole new way of, of experiencing life. Like my life is, Mm. it was a 180 after that moment for sure. Do you feel like that sort of obviously gave you that power back to be able to live without judgment and without fear to take ownership for yourself? I was a part of it. I think that's an ongoing process And I think, you know, when you come out publicly, my DMs had every kind of response under the sun, a lot of positive, yes, and a lot of really harsh, critical, um, rough comments, Um, things that I'm like, oh, I don't think anyone could ever say this out loud if we were face to face. And so it wasn't all like rosy and peachy. Um, but I did, I think those acts, those moments really over time do, um, build up that muscle and you go, okay, well, I made it through that. So bring it on world. Like, you know, newer hardships occur. And I'm like, well, I made it through that mountain I made it over that mountain, made it through that Valley. Um, I know there will be a way to get through this one. And that is very empowering. That is very, uh, yeah, it's invigorating to be able to be like, 
you know, I'm, I'm still soft enough to feel I'm not impenetrable, but I am sturdy enough to withstand a lot more. How did you get to that place necessarily though? Cause going from conversion therapy to being able to, you know, proudly have a girlfriend to then coming out, you know, what was that sort of development for you? Like, was it a long period of time or do you feel like it was actually through a very short period of time that you started to dedicate this time and understanding to who you were? It, it was, it was years. It was years for me. Um, we were together for multiple years and I was unpacking one giant thing at a time, you know, first it was family and like what that means for my mom to know this. And how do I come forward and tell my family in Ohio, or do they just read an article later about it and go, huh? Um, And then it was religion and faith. And then it was, oh, my entire community and lifestyle is kind of shifting as I'm coming into who I really am. What do I do about all these friends who don't accept this part of me. So there was a lot of grieving. There was a lot of loss and letting go. There was a period, I mean, where I, it was, it was tough. Like there's no other way around it, but what kept me going was this deep, deep, deep knowing somehow, some way that I wanted to be somewhere else than where I was currently. So I was gonna have to go through it. Like Mm. I was just gonna have to take one step at a time. And I think what, what helped me was whenever, whenever I looked too far ahead, it was too overwhelming. So I had to really, you know, break down the the giant mountains into just very small steps. And until the step that felt manageable to take, I would break it down even further. And if that just meant, okay, today is just about getting out of bed not even like getting to the bathroom to brush my teeth, but just getting out of bed first, then I will do that. And then when I get there, I'll take the next smallest manageable step. And, you know, that made it, made it possible to keep going. Um, But something, you know, not just with sexuality, but with eating disorder recovery, when you're coming home, I mean, and you're deciding to shift how you relate to food, You've got urges and impulses all day long and an hour feels like a decade. And, you know, some days the skill is that you need to use is just distraction just to get through it. Other days it's okay. Let me really feel this discomfort, self-soothe in a new way and build up a new set of muscles. So it's, I'm very thorough with my healing approach. Mm. Um, and I know not everyone is, but I feel like I have to be, if I really want to get that comprehensive transformation, I've got to do all of these little things as I can. Um, and, and now I would say like, I'm waking up full of joy. I'm, I feel so free just generally, all the time. It's like wild, you know, it's beautiful. It's outrageous because it's such a gift, but I also know, oh, this is the cumulative effect of practicing in those really uncomfortable moments. Mm. And, you know, I don't want to paint transformation as like, it just happened overnight. It really didn't. Um, But the beauty is it gets better every time you choose it. 
Like, yes, there are some setbacks, but overall, if you are aiming for love, aiming for wholeness, aiming for healing, aiming for joy, that means you get to experience those things along the way. And that's like so encouraging. If you want to feel more joy, guess what? You get to feel joy along the way. And yeah, there's something about that I think kept me going. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The times that you talk about, you know, just waking up in the morning and making them into small moments of achievements within your daily practice. Did that look like depression for you at those moments of time and being able to say, I, you know, the best that I can do today is just to put my feet on the ground and maybe go take a shower and get back into bed, which is okay. And that's why I'm saying this for anybody who's listening. It's okay to have those days. It's okay to have those moments. I've experienced those moments on many different occasions. And the worst thing that you can do is to resist them instead of accept them and to say, I'm going to accept that this is where I'm at today. I'm not going to live in a state of judgment. I'm going to live in a state of acceptance. And I'm going to know that my body needs this in order for me to progress and to move forward tomorrow and to try again. So, you know, what, what was that experience like for you? Would you say that that was a, a bit of depression at that period of your life? I've, I've recently been reflecting on this because I've, I've never really used the term depression to characterize my lived experience, but in so many ways, when I look at what was going on, it really fits the bill. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think because I just didn't growing up, I just didn't have the chance to be able to say something like that because I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. I had to somehow keep showing up, even if I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. And, and that's where the going offline, you know, took place. Cause it was like, well, Allison can't show up, but the machine skeleton, you know, shell of who she is can. And so I don't know. And that's something that I want to be, um, open to discovering in this current season. Cause I do have lulls. Of course we all do. I tend, if anything, to be more on the anxious, excitable side of the spectrum, Mm. but I do have these dips and sometimes it is confusing because it's like, why why does it seem like my will for life and my will to get things done is just gone? And, you know, I did, I do remember, uh, trigger warning, um, I do remember having moments where I was far, um, I was, I was, you know, contemplating whether or not I needed to stick around here Mm -hmm. and what that would, when I, when I started having those thoughts, I, I knew I needed to, I knew something needed to change. I knew something was truly up because I'm so purpose-driven that it was like, what? Like, you, the purpose-driven person is wondering what, if, if everything's just meaningless, mm. um, and pointless. 
So, so I, I have had those moments, um, but I actually am still kind of like wondering if I would call it periods of depression um, or not. Perhaps it's possible. It's your life experience. And it's the way that you've lived it. And it's just about, you know, that when you put a word towards a feeling that you felt that may be identifiable to somebody else, that's why, you know, it's somebody else can feel a bit freer being able to identify it too. I mean, for me, it was the same. I was always in a sense of go, 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 doing 10 flights a month. It was go, 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 go. And the two days that I would have off, those would be the days that I would crash. And those would be the days where the lulls would come in. And so it's that sense of what you're saying is the distraction and the self-soothing. It's that sense of all of a sudden the things that you knew that you had to do or that were fueling that fire underneath and maybe kind of taking you away from really identifying what else is going on underneath. The days that you could identify it were the days where when it all kind of crumbled and it went into this place of lack of energy and wanting to just kind of look within, but looking within in a way of not really understanding how to yet, not having those tools to look within in a positive way to say, I'm going to turn this into something positive next because in two days time, I knew I had to get back on and go on with the show. And when you go back on with the show, you forget that you have to go back in, you know, but thankfully within my career, being a body activist, I've always had to have a sense of awareness. I've always had to have a sense of understanding of who Haley is, what she identifies as, so that journalist doesn't write the story for me. So it doesn't become that she was just bullied growing up and that's what's been placated on her idea of her body or her sense of self because everyone has a different story as to what's actually stuck onto us to then identify why in the present time we're feeling a specific way. So don't ever feel shame for saying, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know what those periods of time were. That's just what they were. And that's all that you really do need to know, because what you're looking at now is the beauty of how that pain has now been put into purpose. I was just going to say just quickly on that point, it's a great, you make a great point that sometimes trying to find language is hard, but there are so many different ways that you can describe an experience with color or shape. And, or maybe it's a song that it reminds you of, you can speak about it metaphorically, or you can put on music and move through it. And that movement can be just as valid of a naming process as giving Mm -hmm. words. Just in our society, we tend to be so language driven that, like you said, depression looks, feels very different for everyone. And, you know, you don't have to have the perfect language to describe it. It can be color, shape, movement, sound, um, anything. And that's, that's equally as valid. So go, go ahead. No, which I think is why it's so hard. That's why we want to destigmatize mental health conversations because you say one thing and people automatically think that they know the story to what you've lived. And that's not the case. Like even me going back 10 seconds of telling you my story, the first thing comes to mind goes, yeah, but I don't think you were trying to distract yourself. You loved what you were doing. And that's where your happiness and your joy came from, right? But if somebody didn't hear me just say this, they'd probably jump to the conclusion of, oh, she was distracting her emotions of what she felt. Well, no. No, it goes deeper than just one line of how I felt in that one moment in time. And it's this beautiful thing of what you spoke about earlier. It's that layer. There's so many pieces to us. And sometimes in this industry, I say for social media, for example, I hate that a picture feels like there's one definition of who you are to a public of people when there are so many different definitions. And how can you make one photo into relating to so many different layers of the beauty that's you and that that can change over time as well? So, 
it's a, it's a wonderful thing. You just being able to come out and to tell all these different periods of your life that feel like they're going to resonate with somebody else to help them find themselves in their purpose. And that's exactly what you've done, obviously, with your book. Your book is called Mind Body Pride, a seven-step guide for deeper connection, which is just gorgeous as gorgeous can be. It supports the mental and emotional health of queer folks and allies. Can you speak to us a little bit more about your personal journey when you were writing the book, how that inflicted on kind of your own self-discovery in the helps of trying to help somebody else? Well, the the book is sort of a an amalgam of all of the different workshops that I've been teaching for years and all of the different areas I've studied. Um, as well as my personal journey. So when we decided to do the book, we actually had two months to make it happen. Um, But all of the elements were there. And the process is a very, you know, kind of easy to follow, active experience for people. So you can read, you know, the, a short prompt for the day. And then we actually have movement videos that you can do to immediately apply what you're uh, learning and explore the concept. And when I say movement, I don't mean workout and I don't mean interpretive dance. I mean, your natural body language and how you move in that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I really wanted to honor the fact that different people due to their identities and life experiences face disproportionate challenges, mentally, emotionally, physically, societally, And the queer community is, is one of these groups. And, you know, because I'm in the community, I was like, okay, this is, you know, it feels more appropriate to offer my limited perspective, um, in service of, of my fellow, you know, queer community and queer fam. And it's been beautiful to witness the feedback. Um, we're actually in the middle of releasing the next version, Mind Body Movement, which will be for everyone. Uh, So not just queer folks, because everyone deserves to know this information and to feel, like I said, safe, comfortable, confident in their their mind and body. So it's a a seven-step guide to help you reconnect, to learn how to listen to your body, to learn what it's saying, your kind of natural language, to understand the cues Um, And then how to build trust with yourself again, if that's been severed, um, how you view your body. Sometimes we store a lot of shame or distrust and, and then learning how to speak in, in all of your voice, not just your literal speaking voice, but in how you show up and take up space and move through the world. And of course, then the, you know, community factor of how your life intertwines with others. So if anyone is interested, please, like I made this in service of, of giving you a portal to actualizing who you are and all of the proceeds go to uh, queer youth mental health programs. So if you think like here she is plugging it so she can make money, like I don't see a dime um, personally from it. And I like it that way. And we also had uh, different professionals come in to, to make sure that the information is um, accurate and and has therapeutic benefits. 
Amazing. Well, I want to end on one last question. Then we're going to go into a couple of questions to tap into what make you, you, but with today talking about mental health awareness and with 615 billion people struggling worldwide with a mental health condition, what would you say to your younger self today? If you had the guidance to speak openly about what you were struggling with back then? Oh, um, wow. Uh, I, I, when I, when I think of my younger self, I see about a seven-year-old who is just so self-sufficient already because she stopped trusting adults and already doesn't rely on other people. So I would want to encourage her to see the value in, in, letting herself be loved and supported by others. And I would probably, and what I do when I'm kind of reparenting my inner child now is I provide that presence that I needed so that she does have a resource because she was, she was right to not trust based on a lot of different scenarios. Like she was smart to say, all right, I'm going to need to fend for myself. Um, and, and I respect her for that. And I'm like, wow, you are so mature. Um, but also how can we, how can we let you know that you don't have to solve everything alone? You don't have to be a lone wolf in this. Um, because I think I'm, I might then have a little bit more sense of, um, trusting others and, and building community. I'm doing that now but I'm approaching 30. And for most of my life, I, I have been quite solo. Well, thank you. And so as I leave every episode, I like to tap into a few questions that make you, you, you know, we ever so often talk about building your personalized toolbox to lend to your emotional journey. And I want to know what served you the last time you had a flare up or challenging moment. Oof. Um, exactly what I just shared. I had a moment where I realized someone who's very meaningful to me uh, let me down in a in a huge way uh, in my early childhood, and I kind of had to come to terms with it again. Um, but I stepped into my room and essentially walked myself through a session of reparenting the young version of myself mm. and alternating between dealing with the difficult emotions and then introducing that present positive resource who kind of provides that outlet and that sense of, oh, it's going to be okay, even though I feel uncomfortable right now. And you sort of go in this figure eight form of visiting the difficult parts and then soothing with the positive resource until you sort of complete um, the story in a new way with a new understanding and make peace with it or wh whatever the outcome is. So that was tremendously helpful. And if anyone's interested, a great book for this is called Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. I was just about to ask. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Um, lastly, what are the three biggest lessons you learned in your life? These can be words, moments, sayings, feelings, whatever authentically comes to your mind. Um, first, Seek first to understand before expecting to be understood. I always try to listen 
you know, I have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, second, it is possible and very important to reconnect with your body and to trust that it is a source of intelligence. Um, and number three, uh, even though it can be tempting to revel in the story that drives you, it is actually for me, um, more empowering to learn how to let go of that story and expand beyond it, transcend the story and be able to really take in more of life, uh, more of who I am, more perspectives and possibilities, but you have to be willing to let go of the story that's driven you. Um, and on the other side, if you have something like wholeness or love at the core on the other side, like it's super worth it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think those are my three. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your life, your insight, your hope, your inspiration, all of the above. It is very much gratefully received. And if anybody is hoping to continue the conversation with her or to be able to learn more about all the wonderful things that she is doing, you can go over to Allison Stoner. That is her Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. And your website is allisonstoner.com. Calm. Yeah, go to movementgenius.com. Come hang out. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. And if you're looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetically authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing inspiring stories of ownership to self. To always remember to leave with the three M's, that's mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. Be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss an episode. And it's okay to not be okay in your journey to become grounded in the power of you. Now, some of the topics we discussed today may have been triggering. If you're in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please text home to 741-741 or head over to activeminds.org slash mhresources for curated resources ready to hear from you. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan Dematty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horenigay, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. Do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.